You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The dream that I have is that just by using technology services, security is baked in and it's included by all of the different vendors and providers out there. And I think that consumers should demand that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Andrew Morris. He's founder and CEO of a company called Gray Noise. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories, uh, we've got uh, a few follow-up items here. Yep. Uh, You want to start us off? Yeah, I'll take the first one. This one comes from Mark in Canada, and I have to make sure I'm saying it right, Canada, because I used to have a Canadian friend who I'd tease and say Canada, (laughs) right? Okay. But now now I've actually said Canada in real conversations looking like a a total idiot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I have to, Canada. Canada. So Mark in Canada writes that he loves listening to Hacking Humans and look forward, looks forward to the show every week. Uh, and he also enjoys Hacking Humans, goes to the movies. Hmm. Uh, his story about is about something that happened to his son who plays MMORPG games. Uh, that is massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Dave. Right, yep. And I did that without looking it up. Wow. I'm, I'm impressed with myself. Yeah, get your, your geek badge renewed. Uh, right. So several <laughs> several weeks ago, and renewed, I think I have a lifetime geek badge. That's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> several weeks ago, he was playing a game, uh, Albion Online. And during the course of play, he got an extremely rare item that is worth 150 million silver, which is a lot of in-game currency. Okay. And he wasn't interested in keeping it, so he put it on, uh, posted it like he was going to sell it. And then he, Mark asks his son, what happened to the sword or the... Uh, the silver. I, I, the silver. Well, the the item, right? I don't yeah. know. I, I I'm thinking sword because I'm immediately going to the South Park episode where they had the sword. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Make Love Not Warcraft. Excellent South Park episode. <laughs> okay. If you if you haven't seen it, go I'm watch not. that. All right. It's funny. Uh, but he he fast forward to a couple of weeks and he says, uh, "What happened?" And his son said he got scammed out of it and it went down like this. Hmm. Someone contacted him and said, "Hey, I'd like to buy it." Uh, but during the transaction, he agreed to a price of 150 million silver. And then the buyer wanted a few other items as well, uh, adding a few more items to the transaction, right? To sweeten the deal, I guess. Okay. So then the buyer goes out of range, right? So in these games, you're you're within a range of somebody. You're okay. literally within a, well, it's not literally, but it's if you're within a distance of somebody. And as they run away, you reach a certain point where you can no longer interact with them. And that cancels the transaction. Okay. Right. Uh, so the guy comes back and goes, oh, I'm sorry, I, I must have moved away. And he reproposes a transaction, but this time he removes a zero from the transaction. Oh. Now, if you remember your elementary math, zeros are very important in large numbers. <laughs> so I've been told. Right. <laughs> okay. But his, his son didn't notice that a zero had been shaved off. Mm. And that's what it's called, shaving, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the so he only got 15 million silver for an item worth... 150 million silver. Oh. Uh, he looks up the character. The character's gone. Uh, it's a new character, and and the item may not even be with that person anymore. He may have turned around and flipped it and, and made uh, 90% on that. 
but he contacts the support forums and their response is, hey, we don't get involved in user transactions. You got to be careful. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mark has some comments. He says, as his son was telling him the story, two things came to mind. Don't shame the person mm-hmm. uh, because it's not stupid. This is just an oversight that, that the person made. And this is a carefully crafted trick that this guy pulled on Mark's son. Right. Right. He does this probably for a living. <laughs> uh, and when when this guy comes back in and proposes a transaction, more experienced players are going to be like, hey, wait a minute, you removed the zero and they're going to, that's going to be the end of it, right? Mm-hmm, but if mm-hmm. you're new to this and you're you're lucky like Mark's son was, you might get scammed out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and certainly Mark's son is going to be more mindful of it from right. here on out. He'll be mindful of it in the future. He probably won't get shaved again. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks for sending that in, Mark. Um, we got uh, a couple of letters from uh, different listeners, a handful of people who were following up on our question about why people enable macros. Right. Um, and uh, one of the more interesting ones, uh, someone wrote in and said that they use uh, Office macros because they're not allowed to use other automation tools. Mm-hmm. So their organization that they work for won't let them use standalone automation tools or use APIs for automation and that sort of thing, right. presumably for security reasons. But everybody has Excel. Right. This is (laughs) another prime example of security being circumvented by creative people. Right. Because you're not letting them do something they they should be doing. So they're actually, you're actually making your organization less secure. That's right. When you do this. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was thinking that uh, this is, I don't know, you know, we call it shadow IT, where people will find a way to get the work done that they need to get done with what you've provided them with. And so by saying no to one thing, you're making them open up a vulnerability somewhere else. Right. Isn't yeah, that you interesting? Can, you can think of it like a balloon, like one of those long clown balloons that yeah. you make making animals. You only fill it up so much, right? So it, it only has so much air in it. But if you squeeze that balloon, that air goes somewhere. <laughs> okay, very good, very good. What a, you are, you are the king of eloquent analogies. Joe. I am, I am <laughs> the king of complex, barely applicable analogies. That's me. Okay. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who's uh, sent these things to us. We do appreciate it. Uh, We would love to hear from you. You can write us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right. Let's jump into our stories here, Joe. I'm going to kick things off for us. Uh, My story comes from the folks over at Red Canary. They have a a detection and response team. They're a security company. Uh, And they published some research recently. This is written by Aidan Russell. Uh, and it's about um, some malware that's called Chrome Loader. Uh, and this is a browser hijacker. Uh-huh. Um, but it uses PowerShell uh, uh-huh. for some of the things that it does. Now, for folks who aren't familiar with it, Joe, can you c- explain to us what PowerShell is? PowerShell is Windows' answer to Linux scripting. Okay. Or Unix scripting. It's a... It's a very powerful development environment that's essentially lets you, that essentially lets you script a lot of things in the operating system. You remember back in the old DOS days, we had batch files? Yeah. Dot uh, .bat. Uh, this is like that, but on steroids. Okay. So that's that's a really dumbed-down explanation of it. It's, yeah. It's really powerful, and you can do just about anything to the operating system that you want to do. Right. So Chrome Loader is a browser hijacker, and and what happens is you get this on your system and it modifies your browser settings. Primarily, it's used to redirect you to advertising websites. Uh, And also, typically, these sorts of things will take over your 
uh, it'll, it'll change the default for your search engine. I think I talked about this on a past show. My father uh, fell victim to one of these things, like many or <laughs> several times. <laughs> I visited my father, and I'd go on a day of the computer's not working, and I'd go over and to work on the computer, and I'd bring up a, a browser window, uh, you know, that should have popped up with, say, Google. Right. And it was just something that said, Search, <laughs> but it was in the Google colors. Seems and legit. <laughs> looked like the Google logo. So for folks, you know, who weren't up on these things, it looked legit. Yeah, but it was not. Um, in that my favorite, case, I don't know how it kept getting reloaded on there. My uh, favorite example of that. Do you remember the Scurple pens? No. That I, I showed you a, a logo. This was probably a couple oh, of years yes, ago. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I showed yes. you a logo and said, what is this? And you said, it's a Sharpie. Right. And I said, no, it's a Scurple. And then you look close. <laughs> and it, I mean, this logo for all the world looks like Sharpie. Yeah. But it isn't. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this Chrome loader, um, there is a Windows version. Evidently, there's also a Mac version, um, which uh, isn't going to be using PowerShell. But... Um, uh, the way that you get this on your system is by downloading uh, pirated things. So movies, uh, software, that sort of thing. Ah, the old pirated software vector. Right. So there is no free lunch. You right. can't get something for nothing. That is the oldest vector for malware <laughs> in the book. Ah, uh, Joe, for the old good old days when you could fire up the Pirate Bay and download some software and not get malware on it. Those <laughs> days are long gone. Th those days have never existed, <laughs> I don't think. Pirate Bay, I mean, this has been around much longer than Pirate Bay. <laughs> right. There used to be, uh, I remember the first time I heard about it, someone wrote down Wares, W-A-R-Z, and I said, Juarez. <laughs> they said, no, it's pronounced Wares. Yeah. I'm like, oh, hacker speak, right? And they're mm -hmm. like, yeah, and... Mm. Uh, and this guy was saying, you can get all kinds of software on these sites. And I'm like, I'm not going, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. Just asking for trouble. Right, right. Uh, so they say in this uh, blog post, we'll have a link to this uh, blog post in the show notes, which has all the technical details, uh, has the uh, indicators of compromise, all the things you should look out for. But the bottom line here is obviously don't go downloading things you shouldn't be downloading. Yes. Um, but also be suspicious of ISO files or DMG files on the Mac, so basically disk image files. Yes, And then absolutely. also be on the lookout for PowerShell execution uh, on the Windows side. You know, one of the things I say is if you can stop people from using PowerShell in your organization, this is an organizational thing. Yeah. Uh, then, then you should disable PowerShell because the vast majority of your users don't need it. Yeah. And for the folks who do... They can come and ask, make their case, right? And you can enable it for them, yes, but not globally. Correct. Yeah, yeah. PowerShell uh, should be an exception, not the rule. Yeah. All right. Well, again, this is from the folks over at Red Canary. Uh, interesting thing to be on the lookout for. That is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us, Dave? Once again, I have two stories. Okay. Uh, and but the first story I, I'm I'm talking about comes from Michigan. Mm. Uh, it's from Nine and Ten News. Michigan State Police are looking for a con artist in Emmett County gas station scams. Okay. So this is the standard gas station scam where, uh, or or side of the road scam where somebody is pulled over and they say, I have this jewelry, you can watch. You can, yeah, they've always got some reason. They need money for yes. gas, right? Yes. I fell for that one once. Right. Talked and you got some, show. Yep. you got some crappy jewelry in exchange for 20 bucks. That's right. Right. Um, and you know, I often say that if you're if you if you really think someone is in a in a in a jam, it's better to help them out than to leave another, the fellow human stranded. 
but sure. when you see this scam, when somebody says, look, I'll give you this jewelry, just hold on to it, that should be a red flag, mm-hmm. right? But what happened in this case was somebody uh, gave the family money and later found them not buying gas or food. And then the person follows this family to another gas station and they saw them asking someone else for money. Mm. Now, this person did something that they probably shouldn't have done. They confronted the family mm. and they were assaulted by this person. <laughs> by so the, so the scammers assaulted the person who was following them or the person who was following them assaulted the family? The scammer assaulted the person following them. I see. Okay? Yeah. So this is one of those things. I immediately think back to the Penn Jillette interview we had mm-hmm. where uh, he's talking about the three-card money scam. Right. And, and he goes, if you, even if you beat these guys, you're still losing your money. Right. Because there's like five of them. Right. <laughs> right? They're going well, to follow you and beat the crap out of you right. and take the money back. They're just going to haul you down the alley. It's right. Right there. Right. It's, it, you're, you're not going to win. And that's the same case here. Don't engage these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, you, if you really think they're committing a crime, call law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And let them engage. Cut, cut your losses. Cut your losses. Maybe write down their license plate number or something yep. like that. Yeah. Yep. Take so a picture. Yeah. I really wanted to bring that. Uh, I saw this story. It's a short story. Uh, but the key point is that someone actually got assaulted by accosting one of these people. And mm-hmm. they, remember, these people are... are uh, they're criminals, Joe. They're criminal. they're criminals. I don't want to say they're criminals. <laughs> Panhandlers aren't really, might not be criminals. Well, scammers but, are criminals. Yeah, scammers are criminals. Yeah. So I, nothing, I mean, a panhandler who's just saying, I'm down on my luck. Could you give me some money? Right. That's one thing. But right. that's not That's not necessarily You're right. scamming. It, these guys who are going from from one, one position or one place to the next, scamming people out of money. Right. They're criminals. Yeah. Yeah. All, All right. right. What the, else you got for us? The second one comes from John Matteris at Denver 7. Uh, that's out in Colorado. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I got a question for you, Dave. Okay. Do you ever buy anything on Facebook Marketplace? Uh, I do not. I am not on you're Facebook. You're not on Facebook, but your uh, wife is a big Facebook she user. She is. And actually, my oldest son does quite a bit of buying and selling using Facebook Marketplace. He's uh, He's been quite, uh, uh, it's been quite lucrative for him. Very good. Yeah. Uh, my wife loves Facebook Marketplace. Okay. Right? Uh, and recently, actually, we were looking for a patio set, or she was browsing for a patio set. We don't need a new patio set right now, mm-hmm. but she was looking through Facebook Marketplace and came across some really good prices on patio sets. Mm-hmm. Um, Fine Irish girl. Right. <laughs> patio furniture. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of my favorite jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Always gets told at all the family reunions. I'll bet. <laughs> the, by one of us, uh, somebody that married into the family that isn't very Irish, by the way. Never gets old. Never gets old. Yeah, we all <laughs> laugh at Uncle Bill's jokes. Yeah. Uh, we make a point of buying things from local people. Okay. Uh, like, we recently bought a grill. And the way we bought the grill was I drove to some guy's house. I saw the grill. I put the grill in the car. And my wife transferred money to the guy via Venmo. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is fine. That's, mm-hmm. that's a fine model. Uh, but these folks that are in this story, uh, by the way, we love the name of these folks. They're the Fishers. Okay. Right? Here at Hacking Humans, we love that name. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's, it's like they were custom made for us. That's right. We called up Central Casting and said, get us some folks who've been scammed. And they brought us the Fishers. The Fishers. If it was in a script, people would say it was too on the nose. Right. That's okay. right. Uh, but their name is spelled F-A-F-I-S. All right. Not P-H-I. Anyway... Uh, that was a long way to go for a terrible joke. The <laughs> In this story, they were scammed by someone impersonating Home Depot on Facebook Marketplace. Hmm. And I got to tell you, Dave, 
this scam actually seems pretty believable hmm. because it looks very much like when they click on the link, they actually go to, to a site that looks very much like Home Depot. And they're showing you screenshots in the video uh, story of this. And you have to look really close to realize you're not on the Home Depot website because, again, they're doing this on a mobile device. Mm. This is how my wife does almost everything on Facebook marketing Marketplace. Mm-hmm. She she does it all on her mobile device. I, I don't like interacting with Facebook on my mobile device at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the only thing from them I have on my mobile device is the Messenger app. Okay. Uh, and again, like I said, it's to communicate with my family. And if I didn't have to do that, I would delete my Facebook account yesterday. Right. I really hate Facebook. Yeah. Um, but... But this link on Marketplace led them to this fake impersonation site that they were saying, look, we have this stuff that's been returned. It's perfectly good. We're selling $175 worth of uh, patio furniture for for a little bit less than 40 bucks. Mm. Now, I know that seems like it's too good to be true, but I've seen all kinds of open box things at these kind of stores go for prices like this. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, and you, you you pull it out and you go, well, there might be something wrong with it. Or you, maybe you go to a scratch and dent place. You ever been to a scratch and dent appliance store? Sure. They, they have really good prices on scratch and dent appliances. Mm-hmm. But you're at a store, right? You know, and you're, you're saying, I'm taking this one, putting it in the truck, and I'm going. Right. <laughs> um, uh, here's the money. Don't call me again. Uh, even if this is shady, I don't want to know about it. Uh, <laughs> but these folks said, okay, well, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll go and buy this because they were looking for new patio furniture. They, mm-hmm. they, they paid it. Uh, and then they got a confirmation via PayPal with, uh, I think it was Chinese across the bottom of it. Uh-oh. And then they uh, try sending emails, and they get no response from the emails, and their patio furniture has still not arrived. They've, got, they've mm. gotten scammed out of, out of this mm-hmm. money. So uh, a couple of things about this. Facebook mess- or Marketplace is a great place to get good deals. Make sure you're dealing with somebody that's local, mm-hmm. right? Uh, another Facebook user is the way I like to do it. Uh, don't go to a website and buy things, even though that, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are plenty of people on Facebook. How does your son do it? Does he put have a website or does he just sell things on the marketplace? And I think he just does it right on the marketplace. I'm not sure. Because I'm not on Facebook, I haven't actually witnessed it. But hmm. I know he does a lot of buying and selling of things, you know, but he'll he'll... Like he'll go shop at a yard sale or something and find something of value and stick it on Facebook marketplace and profit. Awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds like a fun hobby. <laughs> it, it is. You know, it's just a little, I, it's a little extra cash for him. And, Maybe and after even... my NFT thing, I'll try that. <laughs> right, okay. Joe's get-rich-quick schemes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good news, a couple of good news points here. One, these folks lost less than 40 bucks. Wasn't a big hit for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, still disappointing. Uh, but it's, 40 bucks is a cheap way to learn this lesson. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the other thing is the Fishers came forward and told their story. Right? Right. It, it's embarrassing to get scammed out of any amount of money. But these folks went on the news and told their story. So I'm always a big fan of people doing that. Yeah. Because every single person that hears this story now is less likely to fall for the scam when they see it. Right. Right. All right. Interesting stuff. We will have a link to both of those stories in the show notes. And again, we would love to hear from you if there's something you'd like us to consider. Send us an email to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named John who sent us this doozy. Uh, 
We've done these kind before, but I think this one's pretty funny. Uh, it's a it's the typical trunk box scam, mm. uh, and uh, I'm waiting to see what voice you do with this one. Dave. Okay, uh, it goes like this. I'm David Morris, Inspection Manager, Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, Atlanta, Georgia. During our investigation, I discovered an abandoned shipment through a diplomat from the United Kingdom, which was transferred from JF Kennedy Airport to our facility here in Atlanta. Two consignment boxes worth $8 million and other valuable items, which were abandoned due to false declaration and unable to pay for custom and clearance fees of $750. I assure you that the consignments is in your name, and you are advised to provide all details, such as your full name and resident address for delivery and confirmation of your consignment after custom clearance charges of $750 are perfected. Yours, faithfulness, David Morris. <laughs> you sound a lot like Dodsworth from the old Dodsworth cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you remember those? No, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. It was a Warner Brothers cartoon. He was a, a fat cat that always tricked a little kitten into doing his work for him. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, One of sure. these days, I'm going to buy me a mousetrap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I love this. It's 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 a typical trunk box <clears throat> scam. And uh, if you do anything with these guys, first you're going to be out seven hundred fifty bucks, and right. your and your PII. Uh, and if they if you give them the seven hundred fifty bucks, there's going to be just more fees tacked on. You're never getting anything that's worth eight million dollars delivered to your house. <laughs> it's just not happening. <laughs> Count on it. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks to John for sending that in. We do appreciate it. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Morris. He is the founder and CEO of an organization called Gray Noise. Here's our conversation. Basically, the metaphor that I'll give people is kind of the equivalent of the miscreant criminal or villain who walks down the street jiggling uh, car doors and, uh, and house doors to try to just see what's unlocked and if they happen into something that's unlocked, checking the inside to see if there's anything valuable, but not necessarily going after anyone in particular, uh, just looking to see what they acquire and doing that. This is basically the cyber equivalent of that, which is when a um, usually uh, villain, bad guy, etc., cetera, uh, scans the internet, port scans the internet, conducts a technical bit of reconnaissance, but instead of it being on one host, it's on many hosts or on every host that is routable on the internet, checking for the presence or the existence of a certain kind of software, then checking for the existence of, in the subset of devices that are running that software, checking for the existence of a vulnerability. And then if it comes back in the affirmative, attempting to exploit that vulnerability for gain in some purpose. And that is effectively what we're talking about when we talk about scan and exploit. Well, walk me through the process here. I mean, suppose I, I was someone who wanted to go about, uh, you know, doing doing these evil deeds. Uh, how would I do it? What, what sort of uh, infrastructure would I need to set up? And how, how are they generally going about it? I can't believe I'm about to give you a blueprint of how to do this. But, <laughs> but, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So, so, so basically, if you're going to if you're going to do this, the first suggestion that I have is don't. The second suggestion <laughs> that I have is you know, you're going to need to acquire one or many um, hosts that you're going to be conducting the scanning from on the internet. So that might be a host in AWS, 
less likely. It's going to be more likely it's going to be a host in some bulletproof hosting provider, or it's going to be an existing compromised device that you already have access to. So you're going to need one, five, 10, a handful of hosts that you're going to be conducting this activity from. Then you're going to run some kind of tool like maybe ZMAP or MassScan or Unicorn Scan or NMAP, or, or, or maybe you're just going to use a, a, an existing uh, data set such as from Census or Shodan, et cetera. Then what you're going to do is you're going to actually scan the internet for whatever the port is or the ports are that that service is generally running on. You're then going to filter it down and you're going to check for the existence of the software. That's where you're going to want to use something like Nmap or something that banner grabs, et cetera. Then you're going to take the subset of hosts that you've found that are running the software that you're looking for, and you're going to check for the existence of those vulnerabilities. You may use Metasploit to do that. You may use a custom script to do that. You may use a, a, a POC or an exploit code to do that. You may use some bug bounty code to do that. And then finally, once you have the list of vulnerable hosts, you're going to actually deliver the exploit with the payload that you're trying to deliver. And uh, all of those things together are how you conduct a scan and exploit attack on the internet. But again, just to reiterate, super illegal, unless you're trying to get your door kicked down by the Bureau, <laughs> I would advise against it. Well, so so help me understand that as well. I mean, are there any benign reasons for port scanning the internet? Port scanning the internet, absolutely. There are tons of them. Uh, the way that Google really started is that they decided that they were going to index the internet and allow people to search it. And the way that you do that is by scanning and crawling the internet for content, then putting that content into a searchable database and then allowing people to search that database to find stuff on the internet. That's just the oldest example that I can think of. That's just search, right? Building a search engine. Separately, I mean, there are countless cybersecurity researchers who scan the internet to find risk exposure to new vulnerabilities for totally benign and honestly positive purposes. Tons of research organizations that do this, tons of individual cybersecurity researchers who do this. There are entire companies that are built around this. Good, positive security companies that are scanning the internet to try to warn their customers and their, their users of the presence of vulnerabilities on their perimeter. And so there are a ton of reasons to scan the internet and crawl the internet. And even there are a ton of benign reasons to vulnerability check hosts on the internet. There are approximately zero benign reasons to exploit hosts opportunistically on the internet unless there are wildly extenuating circumstances. I see. So what are you and your colleagues tracking here? I mean, uh, my understanding is we're, we're seeing a real uptick in these sorts of uh, attacks. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think fear-mongering is generally a bad thing, and I think that it's generally something that most of the time cybersecurity companies do when they're trying to sell you stuff. And uh, granted, my hands aren't completely clean on this. Like, we have a product that is geared towards solving this problem, but we give a lot of stuff away for free also, just to kind of put our money where our mouth is. The long and the short of why this matters and why we're sort of sounding the alarm on it is that our professional opinion, having studied opportunistic internet-wide scanning, internet background noise, mass exploitation for five plus years, is that opportunistic exploitation, scan and exploit, is increasing in volume and it is increasing in frequency and the amount of time that it takes to go from effectively vulnerability being disclosed to some nefarious actor attempting to exploit every single vulnerable host on the internet for nefarious gains has shrunk drastically over the last two years in particular. And so our 
sort of warning message to the technology community, the security community, is that this is going to continue to happen. This is going to continue to get worse. Things like Log4J are going to continue to happen. They may not be as bad as that. That was actually a pretty kind of worst case scenario, but they're going to keep happening. There's no reason why they're not. And so the existing security products that are out there and the existing technology solutions that are out there do nothing to prevent this kind of attack from happening and being successful. And so we're trying to build solutions to this problem to help people kind of deal with it. And at the end of the day, we believe at Gray Noise that more of the attacks that defenders care about than not are actually completely opportunistic. And they're actually hitting everybody on the entire internet, not just them specifically. And so if we can eradicate this entire class of threat, we can save people an insane amount of time. And that's what we're really focused on at Great Noise. But to answer your question, it's because scan and exploit is getting worse. It's absolutely getting worse. You know, to to kind of uh, mix metaphors and go back to what you were saying about someone walking through the neighborhood checking car doors, you know, there's that old uh, saying about how if you and I are being chased by a bear, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just outrun you. Um, And I think similarly, when it comes to car doors, you know, I think speaking to the opportunistic element of this, if I lock my car door and my next door neighbor doesn't, uh, that may be all it takes to keep my car from being rummaged through. Is it similarly that, uh, you know, there are some things folks can do to kind of make make sure that they're not the low-hanging fruit? So I think that that's generally a good metaphor. The only place where it really breaks down is that computers don't care because computers have an unlimited amount of time. They don't put sweat into things. They don't have attention spans. They can do many things at the same time, whereas a person can only really do one. So that's the only place where the metaphor really breaks down is just mm-hmm. that, like, the computer doesn't care. Code doesn't care. Computer programs don't care. Aside from that, as a general rule, that's a sound metaphor. You do want to, there's a concept called H.D. Moore's Law. And I haven't heard anyone talk about it in a little while. But the long and the short of this is that if you're going to have something on the internet, it needs to be able to withstand at least any kind of exploitation of publicly available, publicly known vulnerabilities that have been weaponized by common exploitation platforms. And all of that is to say that, yes, it is important for you to be secure atomically. It's important for you to at least have some bare bare base level of security expectations on your perimeter. And I do think that it's important to be more secure than your neighbor, but I don't want to overly fixate on that. And I do think that it's important to just effectively... I'd say be as secure as you know how to be based on the information that you have available, the threats that you know for sure are actually real and true, what your risk posture is, what your threat model is. Um, I think that it's important to be as safe and secure as possible under those circumstances. And separately, I think that it's important to not necessarily fixate on using things like intelligent block decisions or data that's provided by security companies to be safe forever but rather just to buy you enough time to put yourself into a better position, to actually apply that patch, to actually you know, uh, implement that WAF rule or that IDS or IPS signature or whatever it is that is gonna really put you in a stronger place. But at the end of the day, like, like I think that more so than being more secure than your neighbor is being secure enough to get you to a more permanent solution. That's what I think really matters. That's the way that I'd like to frame the conversation and take it away a little bit from being more secure than your neighbor, which again, that's a great place to start. But the place that you really want to be is to be safe and secure enough 
for a long enough period of time that you're able to put in, implement a much stronger, more permanent solution, such as a more effective lock on your car doors. I see. So, so okay, well, then what do you recommend there? I mean, what's available for folks to get where they need to be? So the first step, the most important step is to know thyself and to know where your perimeter is, where all of your different data services are that are on the internet, and what you're running on it. What software you're running, what patch levels, what operating systems, uh, you know, what programs are running on that, et cetera. The most important thing is to know thyself. That's really kind of step zero. The next thing that I would really suggest for, for organizations that are protecting perimeters from nefarious actors is that not all, I would say, security intelligence and security data is created equally. I think it's really important to probe the vendors and the providers of that data and information to get an, to, to get an understanding of how and why they have that data, where it comes from, where they're sourcing it from, so that you can get a little bit of a better picture of whether or not you can trust it. Because the trust is what really matters a lot. And then once you have developed some amount of trust on the quality of data that you're receiving in terms of like making preeminent block or preventative steps towards uh, patching and mitigation, et cetera, I think that it's really important that the, I would say, block logic or data that you're using is relevant to your organization. Why would you spend money, time, resources, et cetera, blocking a thousand bad IPs that are attempting to exploit a vulnerability in a piece of software that you don't even run, right? That's a waste of time. And and it's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get you any security value whatsoever. And so scrutinize the the, uh, data that you're receiving from your different vendors, your different providers. But at the end of the day, know yourself, know what technology you're running, know exactly where your perimeter is. And then when a new vulnerability comes out, or rather when you are uh, considering or evaluating using data in order to make block and route decisions to buy yourself some time or to stave off exploitation um, from a scan and exploit campaign, the important thing here is that it's relevant to you and you have faith and confidence and trust in that data so that it can really deliver the results that you're looking for. And I, I would just basically say, don't let your providers or vendors hand wave you. Really scrutinize that because you're talking about you know the safety and security of your organization. So that's where I think um, you know the quantifiability, that scrutiny, that trust is really really important. What about for the small business folks? You know the the mom and pops, the the folks who really feel a little overwhelmed by this, or they feel out of their element. Any words of wisdom for folks in that sort of situation? Most mom and pops probably aren't going to have a, uh, an internet perimeter, more than likely. They're more than likely right. going to be behind like a, a, a network that has no internet exposure because maybe they're just running a payment processing system on an internal network. Maybe they've got like an ATM, some video cameras, like whatever. If things aren't exposed, if you don't have a perimeter and if you're confident in that, then you don't have to care about the specific class of things that I'm personally qualified to discuss today. You have to care mm-hmm. about another number of things. I'd say the important thing for the mom and pop shop is um, someone needs to care about security, right? And maybe you're at a point where it's not a top priority because you're still struggling to keep your business off the ground. That's an important conversation to have with yourself. Once an organization goes above a certain size and requires a certain amount of technology enablement and thus has a certain amount of technical exposure, someone's going to have to care about the security of that. And ideally, it's going to be you. But you know, if you neglect it, then it's also possible that you're going to be in sort of like a world of time and money hurt from a a breach that, you know, is embarrassing and it's kind of difficult to deal with. So 
consider paying someone else to care about it, like an MSSP and MDR. Consider outsourcing it to a firm who specializes in working with an organization such as you. And honestly, like the panacea is the wrong word that I'm looking for, but like the best solution that you could possibly find is just ask for security by default from your network and your internet and your technology providers. Like make sure that the products that you're buying, the technology products that you're buying and that you're implementing are secure by default and that security is going to be guaranteed in those products or, or at least with the service that you're using. That's going to be the really important thing. If you're paying people money to give you technology, then you really shouldn't expect that they're going to make you unsafer as well. And so I would say for the mom and pop shop, until you get to a certain size, you're going to want to almost certainly pay other people to think about it for you if you have the resources to do that. And if you don't, then I think that it's important to be as educated as you need to be on the threats to your organization or your business in particular. And I think that that's the really important part. Honestly, though, the dream that I have is that just by using technology services, security is baked in and it's included by all of the different vendors and providers out there. And I think that consumers should demand that. And, um, and I would really like to see people continue to demand that. Joe, what do you think? You know, Dave, uh, when you're learning security stuff, yeah. you know, when you're going through this, scan and exploit is one of the funnest parts of that. Oh, okay. Right? I mean, because you normally have an environment where it's perfectly fine for you to scan and exploit things. You have your own, they're all your own machines. So you can do whatever you want to them. Mm-hmm. Or they're your training environments machines. But it's really fun. It's good stuff. Um, however, I like his suggestion when he says you're going, if you're going to do this on the internet, uh, he just flat out says don't. <laughs> right? <laughs> Generally, this is a bad idea unless you're with some organization that conducts legitimate security research and has a good set of lawyers. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, like with our vulnerability disclosure process and and our, uh, we do research there. And like we were recently talking about in the CyberWire, we talked about the uh, probe to proto vulnerability where we found thousands of vulnerable sites on the internet. But right. actually, all of that analysis was done on our local machines, not on the on the uh, vulnerable websites or any anybody's any websites machines, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Or any anybody's machines, and that's really key. Is there is a limit to how far down this process you can go, even if you're doing bona fide research, right? Right. Right. You you can never run an exploit on, <laughs> on somebody else's uh, computer. Yes. Uh, regardless, that's just reckless and and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew mentions ZMap, which is a fantastic tool developed at the University of Michigan. Uh, I have a great story about ZMAP. Okay. One of our grad students, one of our PhD students, went out to um, University of Michigan and worked with the the people that developed it. He spent a summer out there, hmm. uh, and including Michael Bailey, uh, who is now at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Uh, I've met Michael, talked with him. I really like him. Uh, what <laughs> Michael's done some interesting research uh, in. Uh, social engineering as well. I think I've talked about his research with the USB dropping. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But the other thing that he's really good at is, is or he's done, is IP fingerprinting, oh. right? Which I think is interesting. And that's part of the scan and exploit thing, mm-hmm. right? It lets you know exactly what's going on there. Anyway, uh, this PhD student brought the NMAP software or ZMAP software back to Hopkins and uh, did a scan of the internet for... Uh, for a certain port just to see what was open. And 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and the phone started ringing. Ah, okay. <laughs> Did somebody just run a massive port scan out of your organization? <laughs> Essentially, scanning the entire internet to see if any of these ports are open. Oh. Uh, and the answer to that question was, of course, yes. That has happened. <laughs> okay. Now we have a our own separate network where that happens. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So we we don't get the phone calls from our network security guys anymore. I see. Did someone get a stern talking to. Someone did get a stern talking to. <laughs> yes. Okay. This was just a little bit before my time, so uh, I've only okay. heard the stories. I wasn't around for it. Ah, okay. It's a good story. <laughs> and ZMAP is an interesting tool as well. Yeah. Uh, this kind of, these kind of attacks are exactly why patch management is important. Mm. Okay. These, these are opportunistic attacks and you don't want to be the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew makes a great point. These exploits go from concept to actionable software remarkably quickly. Right. Uh, you don't have a lot of time. When you when you hear about a zero-day patch, you need to patch that now. I One of the things I like to say is they should have that in negative numbers, right? <laughs> it shouldn't be a zero-day. It should be like a negative seven-day, <laughs> right. right? Because chances are, if the security reacher has found it, somebody else may have found it as well. <laughs> Power up the time machine. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay. Computers are very patient. They will do everything asked to them, and they really don't care about time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's your analogy with the going around checking car doors. Uh, the a computer can not only check car doors; it can check every single car door and the trunk and the hood, mm-hmm. and to see if it has any key fobs that can that can get in. And, and it can spend all the time in the world doing that, and you don't have to be around for it. Right. It's it's uh, an interesting way that uh, that Andrew talks about the analogy breaking down there. Yeah. It's key takeaway. Temet noske, know thyself, right? (laughs) Yeah. This is one of the biggest issues in the IT industry is you need to have a handle on all the equipment that you're responsible for and what's running on it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of inventory management gets much more difficult the larger your your, your organization gets. Right. Right. You start off with maybe five computers. It's easy to know what those five computers are. Mm -hmm. But now you've grown to a company with 50 computers or 50 people Mm -hmm. and Maybe some of those people have two computers. Maybe they're bringing their own devices, like we talked about earlier, Shadow IT. Yeah. What kind of software are these folks running? They've probably gone out and installed open source software on all these machines to make sure that things are out there. Uh, you know, you can use this can the scan and exploit uh, technology to your own advantage as well. There are tools out there that actually do vulnerability scanning on your network to see if there's anything that you don't know about. Right. Uh, there are plenty of tools out there for, right. for that. Yeah, just think about how many times somebody, you know, oh, Bob, run down to uh, Office Depot and, and get a inkjet printer. Right. We need, we need to print some labels or, or something, you know. Just, yeah, and, and put it on the network. Yeah, just plug it in. Yep. We, we got to get this job out, whatever it takes. That's right, and that's, that, that's an important point, Dave. People aren't doing this because they don't care about security. They're doing this because they want to get the work done. Right. Right? They have a job to do, and they want, they want to do it, and they want to do it well. Right. So, yeah. It's important that uh, security is part of that. For smaller organizations, be mindful of security and ask for it from your vendors. Limit your exposure as much as possible. Like we talked about earlier, if you don't need it, turn it off. That's one of my favorite things to tell smaller organizations is just get rid of your, uh, make your footprint as small as possible, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you can, outsource it. Outsource it to somebody where that's their job, like a managed service provider or something else. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Andrew Morris for joining us. Uh, He is the founder and CEO of Gray Noise.
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.